0: As a boy, Daniel had a privilege. He, he sat under the preaching and teaching of the prophet Jeremiah. It, it's really amazing if you think about it, what you and I read in the book of Jeremiah in our Old Testaments, it's very, very likely Daniel heard with his own ears. Because Jeremiah largely is a sermon, and it's a collection of sermons. And Daniel grew up with Ezekiel listening to the preaching. Of Jeremiah. And it was the preaching of Jeremiah that sustained Daniel through this Babylonian exile that he and his fellow uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah had to endure. And his life circumstances that he found himself in were absolutely of no surprise to him. Daniel was told this was coming. And as he experienced it, he had absolute confidence that this is as the Lord. Decreed. He was not surprised that Babylonia, Babylon attacked Judah and took Judah captive. He was not surprised to learn about a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was not even surprised, and he knew during his exile that this would last for 70 years. He knew all of this before Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon stormed into Jerusalem in 605 BC. Jeremiah just put together some verses in chapter 20 and 25 of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is is recording God's words to Judah. And here's what God says. God says, I will give all Judah into the land of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. Hmm. Wrap your head around that. Daniel understood that God intended the Babylonian exile, and the purpose that he intended it was to punish Judah's unfaithfulness to him. Daniel also knows in advance that Babylon will not survive their evil toward Judah. So I just want to hit pause for a moment, and I want to give us a glimpse from the Bible Of this one that we call God. He raised up a people called Israel. To be his chosen people. And these people rebelled against him. And so then he raises up an adversary for his people. Called Babylon. And he punishes Judah in this case. With Babylonian exile. And then our God is going to turn and punish Babylon for the evil they've done against Judah. That's a really big God who sovereignly rules and reigns over all the events that happen in creation. Babylon didn't rise up and surprise God and God had to countermove to protect Israel. No, God rose up. Babylon to punish his people Israel and then he punished them he did this with Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10 he does this over and over again that was a quick aside let's come back to Daniel's vision he's 70 years old at this point in this dream he's been in exile for 55 years so he knows he's got 15 more to go but here's what Daniel was not prepared for He had no history, he had no background, he had no sermons from Jeremiah that were going to prepare him for what God revealed to him in a vision in Daniel chapter 8. God, in this vision that he gives Daniel, is unearthing new history, new prophecy. And Daniel has no background or preparation for what he's going to discern in this dream that Daniel chapter 8 is for us. So let's jump in. We are, yes, going to cover the entire chapter, but we're going to move quickly because much of this we already know. So let's move quickly to the, in the front end here, and I'm going to camp out here in a later part of the sermon. So first of all, we pick up in verse 1, and here's what Daniel writes. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Now, that first one was Daniel chapter 7. That's the, ver- the first vision he had. Verse 2. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. Let me quick pause here. Let's get some history Susa the citadel is a real historic city it was soon in the future to be the capital of Persia but it was not yet and Susa you need to know is a very prominent city in Bible history there are two people that came out of Susa that were instrumental in God's unfolding story in the Bible the first in about 480 BC was a queen and her name was Esther and we have a book about Esther She ruled and reigned on a throne that was established in Susa in 480 B.C. There was another that came from Susa, and his name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah in 445 B.C. was sent from Susa back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. So Susa is a prominent place in Bible history, and some massive people in God's kingdom came out of there. Today, Susa has been unearthed. This citadel is known, this canal, it's about 900 feet wide. It's dry today, but these are archaeologically proven places. And biblically, they are prominent and significant as well. Verse 15, let's let's do this. I want to unpack as we set the scene here. Daniel setting the scene in the first two two, two verses. Now go down to 15 because he says some more about setting this scene up. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision... I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. We're going to work through this chapter and we're going to see the vision and then we're going to jump down to Gabriel's interpretation of this vision. And that's how we'll unpack this. We won't go line by line. We're going to go topic by topic through this chapter. Let me introduce you to Gabriel here. There are two angels named, two holy angels named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. We see both of these angels in the book of Daniel. We'll meet Michael. I think it's in the chapter 11 and chapter 12. But here we see Gabriel for the first time. He is named four times in our Bible. The first right here in chapter 8, but we also are introduced to him again in chapter 9 where he speaks to Daniel on behalf of God. That's what an angel is, by the way, a messenger from God. We also see this very same Gabriel in the book of Luke. And he's busy in the book of Luke. In Luke 1.19, Gabriel appears to Zechariah the father of the soon-to-be-born John the Baptist. And he is the angel that strikes Zechariah's tongue and does not enable him to speak until until John the Baptist is born. That is the same Gabriel. Seven verses later, Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary and he unfolds for her what is about to happen to her. She is going to conceive the God-child, Jesus Christ. That's who this Gabriel is. He's busy in God's kingdom. These are Four instances that we see him at work. And look in verse 18. Here's here's what we see further about Gabriel. And when he had spoken to me, that's Daniel talking, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. We, we need to understand something right here before we go one step further. We need to understand what this means. The latter end of the indignation. We need to understand the appointed time of the end. That is paramount to understanding this strange vision. What seems strange now hopefully will not be strange on the other end of this sermon. The indignation that Gabriel is speaking of here... Is the indignation of God. God is indignant. Towards his people in Judah. And Gabriel is saying. You're having a vision about that. And this is a vision of God punishing Judah. For her unfaithfulness to him. That is the indignation. The appointed time of the end, it does not refer to the end times that we saw last Sunday in Daniel chapter 7 where the ultimate Antichrist rises up and Jesus comes and conquers him once and for all. It's not that end time that we're talking about in Daniel chapter 8. Rather, this is the time of the end of a particular season in the life and history of Judah where they are being punished for unfaithfulness to their God. So God, we're going to learn here, in his love, in his love, disciplines his people out of indignant anger towards their sin against him. But also God, in his love, restores his people after a season of discipline. And Jeremiah told us about that in chapter 20 and 25. He's got a people, raises Babylon... Babylon punishes, he punishes Babylon. God in his love disciplines. It's not an uncontrolled indignant wrath that destroys, it disciplines God's people and restores God's people. So what you need to understand as we look at this vision in relation to last Sunday in Daniel chapter 7, you need to understand Daniel 7 has a time horizon of the ultimate end times. Daniel 8 has a time horizon that is more short-term. In fact, I'm going to tell you it's 400 years after Daniel actually has the vision. It's, it's for a time in, in human history, in Israeli history, uh, right at 170 B.C., okay? So we're, we're not going in times, we're going intermediate times here. Now, as we break this down, there are three figures that are central to the dream that Daniel has had. Let's break down these three. The first one is the ram, Look in verse 3. Daniel says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased And became great. Listen, there's a lot of meaning in all that symbolism. Horns, one's higher than the other. One came up later. There's a lot of meaning that needs to be milked out of this. Look down in verse 20. Let's get the interpretation real quick from Gabriel. Gabriel in verse 20 says, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Media and Persia. They came in after Babylon, right? We know this from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. And so here we have an empire, the the Medo-Persian Empire that we are already very familiar with. I'll just give you three points to to build out that a little bit further. Media was the first and larger state within the Medo-Persian Empire. It was the first and the larger body and territory. And it was the first that was let in. Darius the Mede stormed in to uh, Belshazzar's banquet where the handwriting on the wall happened, right? But, but King Cyrus came up, and he was Persian, and when he took the throne, he made Persia bigger and more prominent than Media. And so that is Persia coming up as the second horn that grew taller than the first, okay? Um, we also see that this ram went west, north, and south. Why didn't he go east? Because he was in the east. He occupied the east. And the only direction he could go to conquer was west, north, and south. And if you look at the geography of the Medo-Persian Empire, that's exactly what happened. They stormed all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. The second character. That was the ram. The second character is a goat. Look in verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. You listen to these details. There's much in these details. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. Just a violent overcoming. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Wow. <laughs> We've got a lot of horns, right? Horns are symbols of power. They're symbols of king throughout the Old Testament. They're symbols of might, of rule, of reign. So we have these horns that are having all these battles and coming up and deplace, displacing some. And, and so there's a lot going on with this. And look at Gabriel in verse 21. He tells us about these horns in verse 21 and 22 Gabriel says and the goat it is the king of Greece so here we have the Greek empire right Babylonian empire Medo-Persian empire then comes the Greek empire and follows it is the Roman empire and the great horn between his eyes is the first king the first king of Greece As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. So we've also become familiar with the Greek Empire in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. We know much about them. Greece was west of the Medo-Persian Empire, north of the Mediterranean Sea, and it extended extensively beyond there. Alexander the Great was the leader... Of the Greek empire. The first king. He is the conspicuous horn. That comes out of this goat. Between his eyes. He's the first king Gabriel says. The vision depicts swiftness. Of Alexander and the Greek armies. Because look what it says. It went across the face of the whole earth. Without touching the ground. Remember last Sunday. It was a leopard with wings fastest animal but also he flew we're still dealing with the greek empire here here's how swift it was alexander the great was 21 years old when he took the throne by the age of 26 he had conquered everything legend has it think it's true that he wept as a 26 year old young man because he was bored and he had no one else to go devour (laughs) and it was so swift and his reign was so brief, because unexpectedly, at age 33, Alexander the Great dies. The horn between the eyes, the conspicuous horn, breaks. And now we have four horns that pop up in its place. And we do know from history that the Greek Empire was split into four territories that were led by four military generals of the Grecian army it is one of these four kingdoms that takes the focus of Daniel's vision from this point forward through the end of the book and that is where we will camp out we need to look at the third character in this vision and oh is it a character it's the little horn look in verse nine out of one of them came a little horn okay This is the four conspicuous horns that went to the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Footnote, the glorious land is the holy land. It is the land of God's people, Israel. It is Jerusalem. Verse 10, it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host... Of, the, some of the, And some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Mm. Tough news. Gabriel picking up in 23 interprets it this way and the latter end of and at the latter end of their kingdom when the transgressors have reached their limit a king of bold face one who understands riddles shall arise his power shall be great but not by his own power and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are his, who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. What in the world is going on here? We need to to make some differentiation here. We saw a little horn in Daniel chapter 7. And that little horn in Daniel 7 was the Antichrist in the end times. This little horn is not that little horn. Because remember, we are still in the Greek empire. The little horn in Daniel 7 rises up out of the remnants of the Roman empire. The Roman empire has not yet come into power in Daniel's vision in chapter 8. So this is a different little horn that rises up and we need to understand some things about this little horn and about the time frames that this vision is dealing with. This little horn, and there are many who have studied this passage and there is really no one who disagrees, this little horn is a king, is a ruler of one of the four sub-kingdoms of Greece. And he has a name, and he is a real human figure in history. And his name is Antiochus, Antiochus IV. You may have heard of him. He is Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is a wicked, evil man in the history of humanity and in the history of Israel. Antiochus came into power in 175 B.C., so about 400 years after Daniel has this vision. And I need you to know this morning that Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. He is a type of Antichrist. There will be many that will come until the ultimate Antichrist comes that was promised in Daniel 7. And we looked at a verse from the New Testament that proves that fact straight up. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Where have they heard that the Antichrist is coming? They've read Daniel chapter 7. But John says, yeah, that one's coming. But so now many Antichrists have come. So Antiochus Epiphanes is a predecessor of the ultimate Antichrist. He is one of many the Greek word for anti, it, when you hear the word anti, we talked about this last Sunday night. When you hear the word anti, you think against, right? Well, in the Greek, it has that meaning plus it fills out to add another element to it. It is against and in the place of. That's what anti means in the original Greek languages. Antichrist means against and in the place of Jesus Christ. And that is what the Antichrist will be about. And that is what every single Antichrist from that time going forward to the ultimate will be about. Being against Jesus Christ and putting himself in the place of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Antiochus named himself Epiphanes. In fact, his full nickname that he gave himself is Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. It's Greek. This is the Greek Empire. And by the way, quick footnote, this is why the New Testament was wit- written in Greek. The Greek Empire took over the whole world and that language became the common language and it is the language that the New Testament was inspired by God to be written in. An easy, simple Greek for the world to understand. Well, the Greek Theos Antiochus Epiphanes means this, Antiochus, the illustrious God. Phaos is the Greek word for God. Epiphanes is the Greek word for illustrious. Antiochus, the illustrious God. That's what he named himself. That ought to sound familiar to last Sunday's sermon when that Antichrist will speak great and boastful things before the Most High. There are coins that we have to this day that have this nickname for Antiochus on it, on them. This is proven history. We have souvenirs from this. What is true of this Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, is true of all Antichrist's that will follow him, and is true for the ultimate Antichrist that will come in the end times, in the last days. They are all cut from the same wicked cloth. In Daniel's vision, this Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanes, turns towards the glorious land. And I told you earlier that is Jerusalem, the holy land. He turns toward, and what he does is unthinkable. We have this recorded from uh, the Maccabees and some other people in history. In Jerusalem, he went and he replaced the high priest with his own man. He went and entered the Holy of Holies and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering. He defiled the temple precincts room by room and he took sacred furniture out of God's temple. He attacked Jewish worshipers on a Sabbath one time with 20,000 troops killing untold numbers of Jewish worshipers of God. He placed a statue of Zeus in the temple. This is what is referred to as the transgression that makes desolate in verse 13. And he ordered human sacrifices to be made on the altar of God. And they were done. And he he made circumcision forbidden. He made unclean food and meats to be standard fare. He did all kinds of things. I could go on and on and on. This is a wicked antichrist Figure. And I want you to know this morning that the works of the Antichrists that will come, that have come, and one ultimately that will come, they are all about the same things. And we need to understand this so that we recognize it in the event that we encounter such in the world that we live in. And there are Antichrists among us today, yes. Spiritual warfare is real. So, last Sunday, we saw that the Antichrist was about three specific activities. In Daniel 7.25, we saw three things that the Antichrist will be about. This Sunday, we see that the predecessor of that ultimate Antichrist follows the same order of business. And all Antichrists will do these three things. And here they are. In Daniel 7.25, we said, first of all, the Antichrist shall speak words against The most high will watch Antiochus Epiphanes do just that. In verse 10, it says, it grew great even to the host of heaven. In verse 11, it says, it became great even as great as the prince of the host. And that word prince is capitalized, that is God. And so what this means is from the perspective of the world, from the perspective of man, this Antichrist grew great, grew great. Great. And look at this in verse 24. And in his own mind, he shall become great. This Antichrist in his own mind shall make himself great and equal, if not bigger and better than the most high. Thus he names himself Theos, Antiochus, Epiphanes. In verse 25 it says, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And the first prince is capitalized, that is God. He shall rise up against God. So this Antichrist is following the same trail that the ultimate Antichrist in Daniel 7 will follow. Number two, in 725, we also see that that Antichrist shall wear out the saints. And we talked about that last week. Wear out the saints. Watch what Antiochus Epiphanes does in verse 10. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. Now, this is visionary language. Okay, this is analogous language. I want you to go to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and he said, look up there. You see the stars in the heavens? That will be your offspring. You won't be able to number them. So here we are with stars being thrown down to the ground and trampled. Translation? Translation? Saints are going to be persecuted. The stars, the offspring of Abraham, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be worn out. In verse 24, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and look at this and the people who are the saints. Oh, he's doing exactly what the Antichrist in Daniel 725 is going to do. Verse 25, without warning, he shall destroy many. And that is in the context of Jew, Jewish people, Yahweh worshipers. Number three, the third thing the Antichrist is going to do back in Daniel 7, 25. He shall think to change the times and the law. The law is the truth of God, the word of God. It's unchangeable. It's Everlasting, it's pure, it's right, it's holy, it's just, it's perfect. And the Antichrist is going to seek to change it. We'll look at Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 12. And it will throw down truth to the ground. Change the laws, you see it? He will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. And look in verse 25. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. So he's going to throw the truth of God down to the ground and he's going to raise up lies and those lies are going to be what prosper in the world that he is allowed to ravage for a time. We need to be watchful for the truth being thrown down and deceit being raised up and prospering. And we don't need to buy it. We don't need to drink from that cup. We need to be wise and discerning. And we get there by having... Passages like this preached. We get there by having these warnings brought before us. But watch this. Like the ultimate antichrist in Daniel 7. This antichrist gets defeated. In verse 25. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That is God. And he shall be broken. Dash. But not. By human hands. Just like the rock cut out with no human hand. Brought down Nebuchadnezzar's statue. In Daniel chapter 2. Just like the ancient of days in Daniel 7. Will bring judgment upon the Antichrist. With the one like a son of man. Antiochus Epiphanes. Will be and was. Brought down. Not by man, not by man, but by God, the Prince of Princes. There's a question that pops up in the middle of this passage. Starting in verse 13, it's really strange. Daniel is eavesdropping, kind of, in his vision on a conversation between two holy ones. <laughs> okay, these holy ones, man, who are they? I think it's two angels. Doesn't seem to be Gabriel, but Gabriel's one angel does talk to Daniel. So maybe it's Gabriel and another angel. But in verse 13, we read this. Then I and this is Daniel speaking. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, so this other Holy One gets a question from another Holy One. And the first Holy One gives the answer, but not to the other Holy One, but to Daniel. And here's what he says. For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So how long until the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state? 2300 evenings and mornings. That's a fancy way of saying 2,300 days, I believe. You have an evening and a morning. We got that pattern in the creation account, and there was evening and morning on the first day, right? Or morning and evening on the first day. And that's said over and over again through creation. So I think we keep it in the same spirit of God's language in Genesis 1. So we have 2,300 days. If you do some math, that divided by 365, you get six years and four months. That this will happen before the temple is restored. Antiochus Epiphanes came into power in one seventy-five BC, but he began the persecution of Jerusalem in Israel, in Judah, and God's people, in the year one hundred seventy BC, when he supplanted the high priest with his own man. That was the beginning of a of a horrifying six years and four months. Horrifying, 2,300 days. He persecuted Jerusalem from the fall of 170 B.C. until the winter of 164 B.C. Six years and four months. The temple was restored and rededicated on December 25th, 164 B.C. Write it down, it happened. December 25th. 164 B.C. To this day, the Jewish people celebrate this day as Hanukkah. And this Hanukkah event is even referenced in John chapter 10 in the life of Jesus. We read this in 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication... This is the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C., December 25th. At the time of the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, period, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. History. History. The Bible is real. The Bible is true. It is accurate. Dates mean things. Numbers of days mean things. We need to be careful about how we translate them. But when they're obvious like this, we embrace them. When we're uncertain, we're humble and we say, don't know. Could be this, could be that. But here we have black and white calendar work by our God. Calendar work by our God. Look in verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. This is Gabriel speaking. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Many days from now equals 400 years, roughly, give or take. You know, I didn't do the math exactly. But from about uh, 580, no, 550 B.C., when Daniel has the dream, to 170, 163 B.C. You've got 400 and something years. 500 and something years. He's to seal this vision up. That doesn't mean hide it and keep it from people because we have it in the Bible. No, seal it up means mark it down as going to happen. Set the seal to it. Stamp it. Done. Deal. And Gabriel says it refers to many days from now. So then we have this final piece in verse 27. This is the last verse. We've chopped every other one up to this point somewhat quickly. Here's the last verse. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. (laughs) We we have here a picture of a man. He is 70 years old when he has this vision. He has been in captivity in Babylon for 50 years five years and now he gets this and he was overcome and he lay sick for some days but then he picked himself up and he went about the king's business faithfully serving not the king Belshazzar but the king of kings God who decreed it appropriate that Daniel be an exile, in Babylon serving a pagan king named Belshazzar. After he served Nebuchadnezzar. And soon he will serve Darius and others. So Daniel's vision is, a, is horrible as it relates to the people of God. It made him sick for some days. And he even says he didn't fully understand it. We have hindsight. We can look back and understand what he couldn't yet. But one thing that he did know is that there are terrible persecutions coming to God's people. He knows this for a fact from this vision. And though it's many days from now, he grieved for those as if he was with them. And I'm hearing Hebrews, I can't remember the reference, but grieve with those who are in prison as if you're in prison with them. That's Daniel here. He loved the kingdom of God and God's people so much that even 400 and 500 years in the future, when he knew great persecution was coming from this little horn, He grieved so much that he lay sick for days. He cared about, ultimately, the church. He wasn't indifferent because it didn't involve him. Glad that's not me. I'm glad I'll be dead because he didn't say any of that. He lay sick for days. His zeal was not based on what's in it for me. What does this have to do with me? Oh, nothing for me? Okay. No, 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 no. He's all in in God's kingdom for all time he's all in whether he's alive for the stuff or not this revelation overcomes him and he doesn't understand it but it doesn't say he didn't believe it he humbly said lord i don't understand but okay it makes me sick but blessed be your name look at what he does he arose and went about the king's business that God had put him in charge of. What a sign. What a demonstration of a man who is rock solid, steadfastly following after God. I like to say this a lot. I like to talk about spines that have steel in them. And that steel is made of the gospel. Daniel's got steel in his spine. He gets up and he goes about the king's business. He doesn't melt. He doesn't dissolve. Nor does he just throw it all off and say it doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not going to worry about it. It's too big for me. What a sign of trust in the assurance and sovereignty of God. This is how we are to function in the world that we live in. D- do you understand that from last Sunday you have knowledge like Daniel has? I have knowledge like Daniel has, that there's going to be a time in the end, there's going to be a a three-and-a-half-year period that's going to be unfathomable for the saints of God. They're going to be trampled by the Antichrist. We know the same thing Daniel knows about the ultimate end and the ultimate Antichrist. I think it behooves us, I think it is worshipful of God for us today to pray for persecuted saints Maybe a thousand years from now. And maybe our prayers will be used a thousand years from now to preserve a saint through the most unthinkable persecution. I I think we should be faithful to pray for saints in some unknown time in the future that are going to be persecuted. Because if we were them, we would want people to pray way back then for us now. That's one lesson that we need to learn from this. But there's another one. I have not yet preached a fully Christian sermon this morning because I have not taken this to the cross of Jesus Christ in His resurrection on the third day. And you need to know from the Bible that there was a vision much like this about future suffering of one and he would suffer because of the indignation of God towards the sins of his people. And in Isaiah chapter 53, 150 years before Daniel's vision, Isaiah writes a prophecy about one who would come and he would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would be silent before his accusers and he would be sheared like a lamb and he would be afflicted and he would be wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah had that vision from God and I dare say Isaiah put his stylus down and moved the parchments aside and maybe he laid sick for several days. But I know he wept and he grieved over this prophecy he was given. And from that point, 750 years later, Jesus Christ steps down out of heaven into time. He's God himself in the flesh. He took on a human body. He never did what we did. He never sinned. He never was wrong against God. And yet, there was a time of indignation placed on him. God was indignant against the sins of mankind. So much so that Jesus Christ, sinless that he was, hung on a cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the indignation of God, yet he didn't deserve it. We did. And so God dealt with his indignant anger in a loving way on the son that he loved and on you and me that he loves. Because he says, I came and died. And if you'll believe in that, you won't experience my indignation like like. Judah did in 170 to 164 B.C. No, I, I do that again. I do that in 33 A.D. And I do that once and for all. And you won't have to experience what those people did because I've provided a substitute. And His name is Jesus Christ. Would you believe in Him? And would you embrace Him as God in the flesh and Savior and Lord? And I'm telling you, You believe that you are forgiven of all your transgressions and you will not personally experience the indignant wrath of God for your sins. This Jesus, he knew Isaiah's prophecy in 53, written 750 or so years earlier, 800 years earlier. He knew it. He set his face like flint towards Jerusalem And he marched with his disciples because he had an appointment with God on a hill called Calvary. Where he had to taste and experience and drink the wrath, the indignation of God. And yet he went about the king's business and he did it. And he beckons you this morning. Christian, remember me. It's what he says in this sermon, in this portion now. Remember that I did this for you. And he says to you this morning, not yet, Christian, if you're here. I did something for you. And I invite you to believe in my substitution in your place so that you don't experience my father's wrath. I want to take that for you. And that's going to require one thing. It's going to require you to believe in me. Not work and get all these things done. No, believe in me. Because the Father works like this through all time. He punishes those who are wrong against him. Your punishment could be absorbed by me if you'll believe in me. So I invite you this morning to consider this Jesus... Consider this pattern of the way God works through the history of humanity and the history of his people. And I invite you this morning, Christian, worship him, reflecting on the fact that his indignation is no longer towards you because Christ absorbed it. And I urge you non-Christian in this room, consider him and let him take that in your place so that you'll be right with him for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We cast our glance forward into an unknown future and we pray for the saints. That will have to endure the persecution of the Antichrist. Give them strength in that day. Fill them in advance with your word. Have your word running through their veins and through their mind and Bring it to their memory in the most intense moments of their persecution. Keep them steadfastly through it. And reward them with the eternal rewards that you've promised in heaven. In the heavens, new heavens, and new earth forever and ever. Father, if that will be in fact us in some time in the near or distant future, I pray the same for us, that you would prepare us. So that we can remain steadfast for you through it all. And I pray this in the strong and sufficient name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.